good. <laughs> yeah, I I walked out this morning. I'm like, why does it seem different? Because I, I guess I was an hour. Is it an hour earlier? Am I am I in? Like spring spring forward. Yeah, it's shorts weather. Once it gets around 40 degrees, I'm I'm in shorts. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Let me pray for this. Father, we thank you that you are here and you are present. Whether we feel that or not is not not the issue. We know that to be true because you have promised that. We know that in Matthew 28, verse 20, you've been there, you you said you will be with us. And we know that even those days when we feel far from you, even those days when we feel dry, even those days, those days when we feel persecuted, you are right there with us. Amen to that, Father. We love that. We love that fact. We embrace that. And that, that fact gets us through those hard times. And we just pray, Father God, that this morning, I don't even know why I'm praying that, that maybe that's relevant to somebody in this room this morning or maybe many of us in this room this morning. We serve a great God, a God who loves us, a God who is close to us, a God who walks with us. And we ask that we would uh, explore that a little bit more right now, that your voice would ring loudly, that Jason's voice would fade to the background, that we would walk out of here understanding you a little bit better because you spoke to us this morning. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today we continue our study on the signs in, uh, of Jesus in the book of John. According to John, a sign is a sort of a visible experience of God working through Jesus in the world for our salvation. And um, if you can, turn to, turn to page 727 in your pew Bibles uh, and read John 5, 1 through 17 with me. I want to see, I, I haven't looked in here, I just want to make sure, 727. And make sure that's correct first, but I also want to see. Uh, yes, they have a little note on it. Okay, so uh, we're going to read that in segments. So chapter five, verses one through seventeen. So keep that the Bible open on your lap if you can. Uh, the healing of this invalid in this story reveals that God seeks out the lost to save them. And that's the work of God, isn't it? That is the work of God. He'll accomplish his mission regardless of what we say, think, or do, right? And um, so it starts like this. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which is in Aramaic called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five co covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And stop there really quick. We're just going to talk about that for a minute. The pool at Bethesda, uh, along with the pool of Siloam, were believed to be mikvahs. They are uh, sort of Jewish ritual baths for purification, uh, to get somebody ready for uh, worship. The Siloam pool was discovered in 2005 and was quickly identified with the pool mentioned in the scriptures. And the Bethesda pool was excavated in 1888, but it took them more than 100 years to sort of uh, identify and, and interpret the site. Now, some translations include uh, addition, an additional statement on verse 3, an additional little addition on verse 3, and then an additional verse 4, uh, usually in parentheses. 
if it's in there at all, which reads like this. It says, waiting for the moving of the waters, and then verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons in the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well for whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, just early, understand that earlier manuscripts didn't ha contain these, these words, this little addition on verse 3 and the whole verse 4. So some, some translations leave it out completely, some put it in parentheses. However, they only give us a glimpse into the sort of background of the belief surrounding this pool of water. And um, leaving the verse out makes no difference to the meaning of the passage um, or anything like that. It's just an effort for them to be true to what's, what the earliest manuscript says. But the detail, whether we read it in parentheses or whether we find out from a historian later, does help us to understand the story and the beliefs surrounding this pool. So it continues in verse 5. It says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And he can't walk, right? When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well, right? Stop there for a moment. 38 years is a long, long time, right? Some of you aren't even 38 yet, right? Um, some of us are way past that. But we don't know what caused this guy's infirmity, but he had apparently been coming here a long time in the hope of being healed, right? This is where sick people went to get well. It's sort of the spiritual hospital, I guess. They sit next to this pool, and if possible, when the, the waters are stirred, they get in there and they get healed. And this shows great determination on this man's part to be healed, doesn't it? Now, so why the question? That's the big question in this passage. Why the question, do you want to get well? Seems kind of obvious. Do you want to get well? It's like asking a cancer patient, do you want your cancer gone? Of course they do. But think about how complex and how irrational we can become, right? How weird we can get sometimes. How emotionally tied to an illness or an infirmity or suffering a person can become, right? In the novel, there's a novel called An Earthly Crown, and this ambassador goes to visit a nomadic nation, and, but he comes from a nation which practices slavery. And the nomads that he's visiting do not agree with this at all. They're utterly opposed to it, right? And the ambassador brings a slave named, I think, Samea or Samay or something like that. And uh, when the nomads learn that she's his slave, they demand that he free her or they're going to kill him, right? So rather than being killed, he frees, he sets uh, her free, right? But then to the astonishment of everybody there, Samea just refuses to accept her freedom. She doesn't want it. She wants to remain a slave. And they conclude that she's been a slave too long, that she wouldn't understand what freedom really means, right? We see this in Stockholm Syndrome, you know, when, where people develop positive feelings towards their captors or their abusers over time. Patty Hearst used that defense in the 1970s when she helped her kidnappers rob a bunch of banks. She claimed that she was brainwashed and that she temporarily became an advocate for her captors' radical ideology or whatever it was. We've all met somebody, if you think back on your life, you've all met somebody where their infirmity or their suffering has become their identity. I'm thinking about that book, uh, 
the very famous book where the guy has a club foot and it's like it just de defines his whole life. I can't remember the title right now. Um, uh, of Human Bondage, I think that's it. Yeah, that's a great book. If you want to read a good classic book, that's a good book. Um, but, uh, you know, you can ask that person if they want to get well, and they might even say yes, but do they really, right? Do they really want to get well? Maybe they wouldn't even know what to do with the freedom that wellness would bring their lives. Sometimes a person, their whole being becomes sort of reordered. They develop sort of coping mechanisms to deeply, that are deeply ingrained in them that they wouldn't know what to do with, you know, good health if it was given to them, right? Since in their illness, uh, it, it has affected everything about them. It's permeated their whole life. For instance, maybe they've gotten to the point, you know, of living off the state, or maybe they don't know how to have relationships with people, so they have to manipulate everybody just to get them to spend time with them because they're very difficult to be around. And if they get well, then they're going to have new responsibilities. And all those former ways of uh, those mechanisms that they built up over the years have to go away. And then they would have to go to work, and they would have to develop healthy relationships of give and take. So it's a complicated question. So Jesus asked this question not to see the man just walk again, right? But in the spirit of wholeness, given that he is obviously seeking uh, physical healing, but Jesus also will address his sin later on in this passage. Does he truly want to be fully restored body, mind, and soul, right? That is really the question. It continues, verse 7. Sir, the, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me, all right? So Jesus probably sensed in this man uh, a real desire to see his life restored, but he is powerless to do anything about that. He cannot heal himself. He can't do anything about it. He's on his own. He needs help, right? A person who would be grateful, though, and productive when that healing comes. Maybe that's what Jesus saw him in him. Someone who truly wanted wholeness because in verse 8, the next verse, Jesus didn't hesitate to heal him. It says, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. Amazing, right? Uh, I had a bottle of water. I don't know where it went. Anyway, can you grab me one? Thanks. Um, oh, there it is. I left it on the table. Uh, you know, in our first sermon of this series, uh, um, when Christ changed the water to wine, if you were, you were here for that, I had said that at that moment, Jesus' mind was on the greater picture. He was looking way down the road to his future act of atonement on the cross due to the wording that he used in response to his mother and also the imagery of the ceremonial purification jars and the wine and what those, those things would mean to those people, actually. And I can imagine that when Jesus is, is seeing, sitting here with this man, when he sees sickness, when he sees infirmity, he also has in mind of the larger picture, right? That's what we kind of have to adopt. Because brokenness and infirmity and sickness is not a part of the original created order. That's all a part of the fall, right? Remember, the Bible can be broken down into basically four segments. What it was like, the Garden of Eden where we had 
you know, total uh, harmony between us and, e- us and God and us and each other and us and, and our environment and all that stuff. Then what happened? The fall came along and we have destruction. We have enmity between us and God. And that, that is also built into us with each other. We just have everything just gets destroyed. And then we have what it's like now with the coming of Christ, right? The, the kingdom has broken into our reality. It's come in here. Things are happening. People are experiencing the kingdom. But it's not fully here yet. It's not fully come. God is still doing his thing. He's still, you know, on mission, you know. And then we have what it will be. And that is the future restoration of all things. And you can read about what that looks like in in the book of Revelation. And it's beautiful wording. It's a kingdom of healing, a kingdom of wholeness, where every tear is wiped away. And this is what Jesus works towards, right? This is what he works towards. Salvation and wholeness on all levels of life, right? I imagine at this moment Jesus is pretty pleased. He's standing there happy that he's, he's, he's taken down part of the fall here, right? He's, he's done something. The guy is probably overjoyed in this moment, grateful to be made whole again. And Jesus is setting things back to as they should be, right? And the, we see in this man, there's something about him that there must be a desire for healing. There must be some sort of a desire for wholeness in Christ. You've got to be open to it at some level. If there was a soundtrack to this passage, right, to this one little event, it would be sort of a rising symphony, you know, just lifting our spirits higher and higher as this guy picks up his mat and walks away until, in the next verse, the needle gets drug across the album when it says this. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat, right? Now, you can see everybody fall silent at that moment, and they're, and they're thinking, really, right? Really, 38 years, and you're carry, all you care about, is, is, care about is him carrying this mat? That's what everybody's probably thinking. It's as if these leaders want him to say, oh, I'm sorry, my joy got the better of me. Uh, how could I be so senseless? I've come back to my senses. I'm going to stop this silly celebration of walking after 38 years, right? So what's the big deal, right? Because we're reading this in 2023. What's the big deal with carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Especially after 38 years of not being able to walk, right? Well, it says it happened on the Sabbath. That's important. We know that. And, let's, and I want to be fair to these Jewish leaders. We Christians have, have a tendency to look back and say those, oh, those Pharisees there, a bunch of idiots, you know. But what would we have done when we were back there, right? Because let's, let's be fair to these guys. There were certain things that just were not, you know, allowed. They, were, they originated from the scriptures. They were very deeply ingrained. They just weren't allowed on the Sabbath. Although we know that in the noble desire to sort of adhere to the Sabbath law and keep the day holy and all that stuff, the Jewish leadership put a great hedge around the law. Right? Sort of as a safety net or a safety barrier. For instance, if the scripture said, don't do X, you know, they would set barriers so many layers deep so you wouldn't even get close to doing X. Right? Now that, in a sense, is admirable. They're trying to honor the Lord and be holy. But it becomes legalistic as these things do. We know that. 
And this stuff is still alive among uh, Orthodox Jews today. As a matter of fact, there are 39 categories of ritual work that are forbidden on the Sabbath, which began with the story of manna and the, the manna in, the, in, uh, in Exodus, and they are intimately also linked to all the little tasks that were taken and done uh, to build the tabernacle in the Old Testament, right? So each one of those 39 categories is broken down into little details for the modern Jewish person to practice the Sabbath well. Here, these are the 39 categories. Notice the first one, carrying, right? Burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing. You can't even tear a piece of paper on the Sabbath. Not allowed to do that, right? There's all kinds of little details under each one of these categories that are, that are forbidden on the Sabbath. When we moved into our house, I had to reprogram the oven and the stove because not to go into the Sabbath mode on Saturday. You've done this, right? It, I don't know if you know this, your oven and your stove probably have a Sabbath mode on them. And, um, and every Saturday, everything would just stop working. And I'm like, what in the world? And I finally figured out it was Sabbath mode because we bought our home from a Jewish family, right? That's because part of the work to, bu to build the, the tabernacle was to build a fire, right? And the rabbis have concluded that Jews cannot complete a, uh, an electrical circuit on the Sabbath because that is akin to making a fire, right, in modern times, let alone turn your burner on or turn your burner off. Can't turn your burner off either. Therefore, many Jews today will use timers on their lights on the Sabbath so they go on and off by themselves because they're not allowed to flip a light switch on or off. One of the problems in modern life brings are, are elevators in places like Miami where you have a large Jewish population and people live way up in these high-rise apartments and they have to use the elevator, right? There's two problems with this. One is if you get into the elevator and you push the button, you've connected, you've made an electrical connection, right? You've broken the Sabbath. <laughs> you've made that circuit. Secondly, if, if you're, you're, you're too slow in getting out of the elevator and you break the infrared eye, that, you know, makes the door pop back open, you've completed a circuit, and you've broken the Sabbath law, right? Seems trivial, doesn't it? So you have to know that you've got to get right out of the elevator when it opens. The solution that many apartment buildings and even hotels do in certain places is that they have one elevator that is the Sabbath elevator, and it's running all the time, and it stops at every single floor up and down. And everybody knows that... Uh, that um, you have six seconds to get out of that elevator when the doors open. And if you don't, and, and you're waiting too long, you just wait and go to the next floor and then go all the way up to the top and go back down to your floor, right? You have six seconds because you don't want to trigger that door to open. Now, notice the first, ca the first uh, category is carrying things in that list, right? Specifically, carrying things in a public place is the first thing, and that is the first thing to actually be prohibited. The initial commandment of the Sabbath was given in connection with the manna uh, in the desert. Remember, when Moses told the people in Exodus 16, he said, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you the bread for two days. He gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. So remember, they would all go out every morning and collect the manna and bring it back home. But on the sixth day, they got a double portion to bring home. So they didn't have to go out and carry it on the seventh day, right? 
remain every man in his place, it says. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. He was telling them that they're not allowed to carry the manna. And this is the first thing. The, 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 uh, the Torah also gives a, an account of a man who was put to death because he went out and gathered wood and picked up wood and carried it back to his house. The prophet Jeremiah specifically warns people not to carry anything on the Sabbath in order to keep the day holy, right? Carrying is the first and the prototype of all the other types of Sabbath work, right? The deeper meaning was to forbid any act where man demonstrates his mastery over nature. That has a deeper meaning, right? And the first act by which a man demonstrates such mastery over nature is by taking things from nature and carrying them where he needs them, right? That's acting that's, that's enacting my, my, you know, whatever over it. And so if we're going to relinquish our mastery over nature, nature, the first requirement is that we not carry anything away. Then, in a sense, by not carrying, we also relinquish our ownership of everything in the world, right? A main sign of ownership is that a person can take something wherever he pleases, Right? On the Sabbath, we give up something of our ownership in the world. Nothing may be removed from the house, right? When a man leaves his house, he may carry nothing but the clothing on his back because it's God and not man who owns all things. And this, these things were put into place to remind us of these things, right? And to this day, this category absolutely for forbids carrying anything on the street. Pocketbooks, purses, wallets, keys, none of that. You can't carry any of that. The only thing that somebody might carry outside is whatever they're wearing on their back. And we get some idea of how serious uh, carrying on the Sabbath is from the following law. When Rosh Hashanah right, falls on the Sabbath, the shofar is not sounded. You know what the shofar is, right? That, that uh, ram's horn that is blown. Um, and this was legislated by the Sanhedrin for a certain reason. Suppose that a synagogue, right, has only one shofar and it became lost or damaged and the, the embarrassment and the breach of ceremony involved in all that, you know, not having the shofar sounded on that day was, would be, you know, terrible. On Rosh Hashanah. So how great the temptation would, would, would be, right, to carry a replacement shofar from another synagogue or maybe somebody's house and bring it to just blow it on that day. And so to avoid that problem, the Sanhedrin de decreed that the shofar may never be sounded on the Sabbath, Sabbath at all. Sorry. And this is why we must be fair to these religious leaders of Jesus' day, Right? Carrying something would be viewed as something absolutely prideful and arrogant before the Lord, flaunting God's absolute authority and ownership over all things. That's what it would have said. It was rooted in Scripture. It was deep. It was rooted in God's Word. So to us, what seems trivial to them was deathly serious, deathly serious. But we have to add something. All Sabbath rules, all Sabbath rules can be broken if it pertains to saving a life. You hear that? Every Sabbath rule in place can be broken if it's to save a life. So if 
Under the category of burning, you're not allowed to create a flame or extinguish a flame on the Sabbath. But if your house catches fire and somebody's going to die, you can pick up your phone, make an electrical connection, and call the fire department, and you can, before they get there, you can carry buckets of water and, and put the fire out to save a life. Right? And this is important in this story. Since this man has not only had his ability to walk restored, but has experienced the grace of God on his life, making him whole once again. You think that if later on he heard that Jesus was crucified and was raised from the dead, that guy didn't put his faith in Jesus? I, I'm pretty sure he would have been one of the first. That's assumption, though. It continues, verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're all well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went home and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work, right? My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Very important statement. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So this healing of, of an invalid shows that God seeks out the lost to save them and that this is the work of God. This is what he's doing. And that God will accomplish his mission regardless of whatever we say, think, or do, although he likes to participate with us in that. The work of God is about restoring us to what we were originally created to be, right? Whole, healthy connected to our creator, and connected to each other. Therefore, this doesn't really fall under the Jewish leader's authority due to the Sabbath, right? Since this is about restoring life and bringing salvation to people. That's what the story is really about. Jesus asked this man if he'd like to be well. It's sort of an odd question. And he, if he's been lying there 38 years specifically for healing, you'd think the answer would be yes, a resounding yes. But the man's answer seems to indicate that Jesus is on to something, right? Instead of saying yes, he says, I can't. No one will help me. I can't do anything about my situation. And that's true of all of us. There is a lesson here that when... When we have been suffering for so long, it is possible that our identity can be wrapped up in that suffering to the point that we cannot conceive another reality, that we're blind to it. Now, if that applies to you, I would just say, realize that you are more than the suffering you're going through, that you have a greater identity and purpose in Jesus. And Jesus responds to this man with a surprising uh, response of his own, he says, get up, and he heals him. So the, who's seeking who in this story, right? Did this invalid go looking for Jesus to heal him? No, he didn't. We've had other people do that, right, in, in our stories, but he didn't. Did he even know who Jesus was? No, he didn't know him at all. 
So we can say that with confidence from verses 11 through 17 that there is proof here of God's love as described in John 3:17. It says, for God did not send the, the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. A God who has sent his son into the world to save it. Not because the world was seeking God, right? None of us were, by the way. The world did not even know him, as John 1.10 tells us. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't even know him. God moves, God does these things because God loves. God is love. That's it. Here there is more proof for us that we've heard in the past that God's grace is not, uh, is not an exchange, Right? You don't, you, we, we don't do something and then God responds. We don't earn our salvation. We don't, we don't you know, do something good and then God says, okay, then I'll save you. This man didn't even know, say he wanted to be healed necessarily. His response to Jesus' question was, I can't, right? This man can't even tell people who, who healed him. God did this because that is just who God is, right? Jesus did this. Because that is who Jesus is. So the guy picks up his mat. He leaves. After that, he's had this confrontation with the religious leaders. Because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And they deem this action to be work. Then Jesus encounters the man again. And says to him, sin no more. Sin no more. Showing that Jesus doesn't just care about his physical well-being. But his spiritual well-being. The whole person. He is, he is there to, to heal the whole person. Jesus heals the man physically, and he restores to him uh, a life uh, the majority of people would, would take for granted, right? Then he seeks him out that second time, and he encourages him to live a life in accordance with God's will, right? God cares deeply about the whole person, all of us. He cares about you if you're ill. But he also cares about you if your soul is sick with sin. And remember, you can't do anything about that. You are powerless, just like this man in both those states. The sign here is that God is at work in the world through Jesus. And that that work is to seek out the broken and to restore them to life, to seek out the lost and make sure that they are found and know Jesus' name. Know who did it. Know who accomplished this. And in doing so, Jesus is merely doing the work of his Father. He will carry this out uh, in the lives of whoever he chooses to do it, to, to do so, right? In light of verse 7, where this man reveals his need, verse 21, which we haven't read yet, is perhaps the most astonishing aspect of this sign. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. God is doing what God is doing, right? God will accomplish his mission regardless of what we say, think, or do. Jesus is un unstoppable. We know that not even death can contain him. We're coming up to Easter, right? When Jesus came to this man and asked him, do you want to get well, wasn't really an unreasonable question. But the man's inability or unwillingness maybe to give a direct answer, just say yes, didn't stop Jesus from setting him free, right? God has the power to change 
our stony, complicated hearts and bring them back to life. He really does. So here's your question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Think about that. Have you been a slave for too long to know what true freedom really means? What aspects of your life are you still hanging on to that are not doing you any good? Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're suffering from an addiction. Maybe you're, you, know, you, you just have nagging thoughts about yourself that are degrading and horrific. I want to take a few minutes to allow the Holy Spirit time to address these in us, whatever they may be for you, right? I'm going to open us in a time of prayer, and then you can sit silently there and pray yourself, you know, pray on your own if you'd like. But if you would like prayer for anything specific, take the risk to raise your hand where you're standing. When I start this, I want everybody to stand. Take the risk to raise your hand while you're standing. And if you feel, you know, sort of uh, embarrassed by that, don't be embarrassed, right? We, we all need prayer, right? And somebody will come by to pray for you. And if you're near somebody who's got their hand raised and you feel comfortable doing so, you don't have to be assigned by the pastor to do that. You can just go over and pray for them. Please do that. Please go over and offer to pray for them. If you feel the Spirit is sort of nudging you and compelling you to pray for somebody specific in this room, maybe even somebody that you don't know, please do so. You know, during this time, just walk over to them and place your hand on their shoulder and ask permission to pray for them. Let me start that now, and, and then if you need prayer, raise your hand. Come on, stand up with me. Father God, we ask for your presence. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill this room with your presence. We have, all of us have something probably that we're holding on to. All of us have something that's lodged in us that we can't see life without. We can't see the reality of freedom from this thing. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and convict our hearts. Let us let go of whatever it is. We ask for your healing on our hearts right now, physically or spiritually. If you need prayer, raise your hand. 